Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. This week I'm talking with China analyst and author Mark O'Neill about German missionary Karl Gutzlaff, who comes to China in 1831. China was always attractive to missionaries because of its huge population, plenty of potential converts. But the controversy with missionaries like Gutzlaff was that they had a Bible in the one hand and opium in the other. Gutzlaff would go on to translate the Bible, which was read by the man who would lead the Taiping Rebellion. I started off by asking Mark where Gutzlaff Street is in Hong Kong. I must say I was not aware that such a street existed until I started researching him, but it's a very small street in, well, a lane really in, in the middle of Central. And I think the fact the street is named after him tells us of his historical importance. And also he worked a lot for the British government in Hong Kong. So obviously he had a good reputation among them and they wanted to remember him. Carl Gutzlaff is a, a sort of early missionary in Hong Kong. He also is a Chinese, well, an excellent Chinese speaker and, and writer. And so he's very useful, as you say, to the early Hongs here, um, including Jardines. But uh, can you say where he comes from initially? Uh, he was from a modest family in Pomerania in Prussia and he wanted to become a minister so he trained as a minister in Germany and then the Netherlands Missionary Society sent him to Sumatra but his aim was to come to China so in Sumatra he began to study Mandarin, Fujianese and Cantonese and in 1831 he visited China for the first time He's a very early missionary, I mean he's one of the first isn't he to come to China Yes, well, the very first Protestant missionary was Robert Morrison. Following Morrison, Gutzlaff is one of the earliest ones. And remember, Hong Kong has not been established at that time. So the foreigners, the few of them that were here, were in Macau or in Guangzhou. And these missionaries, they had enormous faith and desire. They disregarded the, <laughs> the physical world around them. I mean, at that time, in mainland China, it was illegal to evangelize. It was illegal to convert to Christianity. It was illegal to help a foreigner learn Chinese. So these were many reasons not to go to China and not to evangelize, but... It was illegal to teach somebody to speak Chinese, to, to teach a foreigner to speak Chinese. This was because uh, China was worried that they would then evangelize. Uh, well, uh, not only evangelize, but you see, if you teach someone Chinese, that gives them the wherewithal to operate within your society, to do things that you cannot watch and control. The only foreign presence in China at that time was Macau, and then in Guangzhou, where they have these trading houses, but the trading houses were in a special zone. They were under the watchful eye of the government, of the officials. Uh, women were not allowed to live there. It was only the men who were allowed to, to live there just for trading purposes. And the access of Chinese individuals to this zone was strictly controlled. So that's how the Qing government wanted to, to keep it. So the worst thing that can happen is you have foreigners who are able to read Chinese, who can write Chinese, who can communicate directly with Chinese people, and then you, you've lost control of it. So that was the situation that Robert Morrison faced, and this was also the situation which uh, Gustav faced. 
So he's born in 1803, and Carl uh, Gutzlaff. And uh, now, I mean, it's interesting that you say he, he works as a missionary in Sumatra, but his aim was to come to China. And this was because China was full of heathens? Yes, I mean, it was the, the greatest heathen nation on earth. And whilst South America, for example, much of Africa, India, had a foreign presence and therefore a missionary presence, China didn't have one. But China had the world's largest population. So from the missionaries' point of view, this was a place that they had to come. And, you know, the, the Bible says you must spread the word. So, yes, this was their mission. So when Karl Gutzlaff comes to China, where does he go? Well, this isn't a very good question because the, the, you've only got two choices. It's either Macau or Hong Kong. And you want to evangelize the Chinese, but how can you reach them? So this is where the missionaries work with the opium traders, which is historically a very unfortunate thing that it happened. Because of the opium traders, like Jardim Matheson, they were carrying opium into the coastal ports of China, and they didn't have interpreters. So the missionaries served a very important function to interpret for them with the Chinese buyers, traders who bought the opium. So for the British, for these British traders, opium is, is one of the key exports or one of the key selling points into China? Yeah, it was the most important commodity which the British companies were selling into China. It was extremely profitable for them. The Qing dynasty banned it. So it had to be done clandestinely. So these opium ships would go to these, these ports. They would have individual Chinese who bought it and the missionaries served as interpreters for them. So it's interesting looking back at that now. I mean, the missionaries are there. They've got the linguistic abilities to help these big trading firms. But in essence, they're peddling drugs in order to, to peddle Christianity. Well, it's even worse than that because opium was illegal in China until 1860. And then we have the Treaty of Tianjin, which follows the Second Opium War. And there are two clauses in that. One is that it's legal to sell opium in China. And another clause is that missionaries have the right to live and work everywhere in, in China. These were both included in this treaty. And the Qing government did not want either of these. It was forced to agree to these. So ever since then, and right until today, if you meet uh, Chinese, especially who are anti-Western or anti-religious, they will say, ah, how did the missionaries come to China? They came with opium in one hand and the Bible in the other. And they're not wrong. And the, historically, that's accurate, because without the opium traders, uh, people like Gustav would not have been able to come to the ports. And after they finished their business in the day, they were free to evangelize in the evening or on the days off with the ordinary people. And Gustav changed his uh, dress for this. He put on um, a Chinese uh, robe, a long robe, and he, he wore a pigtail because all men in China had to wear them at this time. Now, this was extremely rare among Westerners who normally stressed their difference to Chinese. They would wear Western clothing. They would have short hair. You know, they wanted to stress the fact they were Westerners, they weren't Chinese. But in order to get better access to Chinese people, Gutzlaff did, did the other thing. So, historically, Christianity in China has never really been able to escape from this because it gained entry through this means. 
Now let's contrast Buddhism. How did Buddhism enter China? Well, Chinese scholars went to India, studied Buddhism and brought it back, translated the Buddhist scriptures into Chinese and that's how Buddhism entered China. So most Chinese consider Buddhism to be a Chinese religion, although it came originally from India. It's considered a Chinese religion. But most people still in China consider Christianity a Western religion. It depends who you are. But of course, a Christian would not say that. It's not a Western. It's a, it's a universal religion. It comes from everywhere. But for, for people who are against Christianity, this is a very awkward historical fact that they have to deal with. Karl Gutzlaff is born in Germany, or then Prussia, in 1803. In 1827 is sent by the Netherlands Missionary Society to Sumatra to continue with his missionary work. He wants to get to China, which he does so later on. He then, as we've been hearing, collaborates with Jardine Matheson and uh, aids them in their bid to sell opium to Chinese communities by providing translation services. But he's also then getting his access to China as a missionary. He wears traditional clothes and uh, also a queue in order to get more in ingratiated or to mix more in with the Chinese communities. Now, Karl Gutzlaff is, when he's in China, is he still with the Netherlands Missionary Society? Yes, well, he, he's got several different hats, Gutzlaff, because not only does he work with the trading companies, but he becomes very important to the British administration in Hong Kong. So he works for Charles Eliot during the first Opium War. Then he works with Henry Pottinger, who became the first governor. And then he was chief secretary to the superintendent of trade and the governor of Hong Kong for the first 10 years of, of Hong So what, Kong. the type of work that he's doing with Charles Eliot and then later uh, Pottinger, what, what kind of work is he doing? Translation again or...? Yeah, I think the, his main function was to be a bridge between the British administration and the Chinese population because at, at that time there were very few foreigners who could speak or write Chinese. So I, I don't think he was making policy. I think his job was uh, advising them, interpreting for them. And remember, his, his main mission is to be an uh, evangelist, so he doesn't want to spend all his time working for the government. Now, as an evangelist, I mean, obviously, with being in Hong Kong and, as you say, working for the administration here, he would have needed Cantonese. But where is he going, you know, in mainland China when he first... Because, of course, Hong Kong is only British Hong Kong as of 1841. But where is he prior to that? He's in Macau, we've said, but is he actually on the Chinese mainland? Prior to 1841, yeah, he, he lived in Macau or in Guangzhou, and then after 1841, he was able to live uh, here in Hong Kong. So he largely stays in what we'd say is southern China? Yes, because... So uh, his language was Cantonese rather than Mandarin or both? Yeah, well, Mandarin was the official language of the government, but for a missionary, it's not so useful because the people you are meeting are either speaking Cantonese or Fujianese. So he learns both of these. So, I mean, it is really remarkable, <laughs> the linguistic ability of these missionaries. And so these missionaries, they would just learn these languages as they went, or they, he would have already come into this area knowing some Cantonese or knowing some Chinese script? Yes, well, he started studying it in Sumatra when he, when he was there, but the missionaries regard it as, as a precondition of their work. They can't evangelize if they don't speak it. So they learn it in a very intensive manner, and I'm sure in the beginning they do need Chinese to help them. But through force of work, 
yeah, they become fluent enough that they can give sermons and they can speak without interpreters to, to ordinary Chinese people. Carl Gutzloff is, as you say, working for Charles Elliott when he first puts the, well, how would I say, puts the British flag on Hong Kong. Then you've got Henry Pottinger, Hong Kong governor. So he's helping out, as you say, probably with translation services. So obviously a highly intelligent individual and uh, very motivated. But as you say, his main task or his main purpose in life was to be a missionary. So this working for the British administration or working with the traders such as Jardine Matheson was a means to an end, really. And presumably he would have got paid as well. Yes, well, when he dies in 1851, he leaves a fortune of £30,000. Yeah, I noticed that. It's huge. Well, you know, when my esteemed grandfather died after 45 years of hard work in northeastern China. As a missionary. So your grandfather was a missionary as well, yeah. Yeah, as a missionary. I, uh, I £25? <laughs> I don't know if he left anything at all. I mean, you know, his, his wealth was in... <laughs> was in another form. So uh, this did arouse some criticism at the time. How is it that the missionary could have accumulated so much money? So I, I, I think most of that would come from his salary, uh, as I say, since he'd worked with the trading companies and then with the, the British government officials. He held a senior position. So, yes, he would have had a, a good salary with them. Now, he's not just operating on his own. He's actually training other missionaries, isn't he? Well, he, he realizes very soon that it can't be the foreigners alone that evangelize China, especially because of all the legal restrictions. So in 1841, he sets up a school in Hong Kong to train Chinese missionaries. So uh, over the next four years, he trains nearly 50 of them. Of course, this is a much smarter thing to do because a Chinese missionary can go from Hong Kong into Guangdong and Fujian and operate much more easily than you can yourself. Uh, he also set up something called the Chinese Evangelization Society. And one of its recruits was a man called Hudson Taylor, who was British. Hudson Taylor later set up something called the China Inland Mission. And this was the largest Protestant missionary group in China in the 19th century. So the recruitment of this individual was a very significant moment in the missionary work in China. So who was Hudson Taylor? Well, he, he was a young minister in Britain uh, at that time, and like many people, they felt a vocation that they, they must take the gospel abroad. And, you know, ministers from Britain and also France, Germany, Switzerland, went to all the countries in the empire. So they went to South America, they went to Africa, they went to Asia. So he came to China. And, I mean, he, he had an extraordinary life, Hudson Taylor. I mean, he lived in China for a long time. As I say, he recruited very large numbers of people. And the fifth generation of his family are still missionaries now. Oh. And this is really extraordinary because, as I learned when I was researching my grandfather's story, many children of missionaries rebel against them mm. because the parents are in some distant remote country, the children are on their own with relatives or with friends, being educated in the home country. In those days, there was no internet or telephones. And so they are almost orphans, and many feel resentment against the vocation of their parents. So many of them are not religious at all. In my, my father's case, he was not at all religious. So 
for five generations of the same family to be missionaries is really extraordinary. And I interviewed, I think it was the fourth generation a few years ago, and I asked him this question, and he said it was a, it was a very difficult process because he also felt a need to do something different. He didn't want to do what his parents had done, but he met individuals who inspired him and changed his mind. So he also joined the, the, the missionary effort. Interesting. So that was the, the legacy of Hudson Taylor, who is taught by Carl Gutzlaff. And so Carl Gutzlaff is instrumental in, in sort of widening this organization of missionaries working in China. So not just Western, but also local. Now, Carl Gutzlaff, he's arriving in this region in 1831. He then proceeds to continue on, obviously, with the foundation of British Hong Kong, but he ends up also having another major influence on China. Well, of course, one of the first things the missionaries had to do was to translate the Bible into the local languages, wherever they went. And he and three other people translated the Bible into Chinese. And his Bible had an enormous impact on one individual called Hong Xiu Chuan. And Hong Xuechuan is famous in Chinese history as the founder of the Taiping Rebellion, which was very successful. It controlled large parts of South China, and it set up a rival dynasty. If you can take me through that then. So Karl Gutzlaff is instrumental with others in translating the Bible into different languages. It's now going to have this profound effect on, as you say, on this individual. Now, he's attempted to pass the Qing Dynasty imperial exam four times. He fails. So uh, do you think he's looking to make his mark in history in another way or is suddenly very Protestant? No, Mr. Hong's history is also extraordinary. I mean, he's obviously a very, very intelligent and talented young man. For most families in China at that time, if you were not wealthy or didn't have land or you weren't a merchant family, the most promising career was to join the imperial government as a civil servant. So he passed the first rank of exams, but he failed the second and he failed the third. And after he failed the third time, he had something like a nervous breakdown and he began to get visions and hallucinations. And in one of them, he visits heaven. So in heaven, he meets a person he perceives to be God. He meets the family of God and God gives him a mission, which is to rid China of demons, including Confucianism and Buddhism, and to convert the Chinese to the true faith. So Hong Su Chuan fails this exam three times. He fails three times and then he has these visions and he believes he's in heaven. He meets God. He meets the family of God. God gives him a mission of what he must do on earth. So then he continues his work. He's a teacher. And then he tries one more time, the fourth time, but he also fails. And one version of this event is that as he's leaving the exam room, there are tracts which Gustav and the other missionaries have left on the table or on a table outside. So after he's failed for the fourth time, he believes, I'm not going to pass. I'm not going to take it anymore. So it's at this moment that he begins to seriously research and study the Bible. So he, he obtains a copy of Gustav Bible, and he reads that intensively. And then he writes his own Bible, which we call the Tianping Bible. So it's based on 
what Gutzlaff wrote, but he, he has additions which he's put in himself because he believes that he's the brother of Jesus. Ah, is that it? Yes. So he's the son of God. So he's had these visions. Mm. He's ostensibly met God. Yes, he's had, he's had these visions. God has given him a mission. And then he writes a Bible which sort of formalizes his vision. And the Bible, as I say, is based on what Gutzlaff wrote. So this is the beginning of the Taiping Rebellion. So, so in essence, is it sort of basically Hong Su Chuan has taken Carl Gutzlaff's Bible and then added a bit of his own manifesto? Yes, because he's, he sees himself as part of a divine mission. So it's not just a, a rebel angry with the government leading an uprising. It's part of a, a much bigger, much more profound movement. Initially, is he even on the Qing dynasty's radar or when does he become a big problem for them? Well, initially he's not on the radar at all, but he and his supporters, they start to evangelize. So they start to collect many followers and the foreign missionaries are very jealous of them because they're very successful at it. And of course, because they are Chinese people, they are relatives, I mean, they, they have a much better understanding of the situation in China and how to appeal to people. And there are many people living in poverty, people without land whose condition is very poor. And they're very willing to join this rebellion. So the rebellion begins in southwest China and, and gathers strength and becomes larger and larger. And they form an army. The army defeats the Qing army. And they control large areas of South China. And he reaches Nanjing and he sets up a new capital. And he calls it the Taiping Tianguo, which means the country of heavenly peace. And he declares himself to be the emperor of this new state. Now, many historians said he made a cardinal mistake at this moment. In other words, he had the Qing dynasty on the run. His army was initially weaker than the Qing dynasty, but because his disciples believed in it, you know, they had a mission, whereas the Qing, the Qing soldiers were fighting for money. They had the Qing army on the run. So if he proceeded from Nanjing to Beijing, he might have been able to overthrow the dynasty and become the emperor of the whole of China. But instead of this, he stops in Nanjing and declares this his capital and sets up this new state with him as the emperor. And this gives the Qing dynasty the opportunity to launch a counteroffensive. And the Qing dynasty ask the foreign powers to assist them. So this is also a critical moment in Chinese history because the balance of forces between the Taiping and the Qing dynasty is quite balanced. It's not very clear who's stronger. So the Western powers have to decide who to support. Now, most of the missionaries don't like Mr. Hong because they believe his, his Christianity is not proper. It was a self-proclaimed one, so they didn't like him. But on the other hand, there were a few who said, this is a historic opportunity that we've been given. And if Mr. Hong becomes the emperor of China, then China will become a Christian nation. Isn't that amazing? So when, what, what sort of era are we talking now? What year? It's the 1850s to 1860s. So we were in the middle of the two opium wars or the timing of, of, of the two opium wars. And you've got this situation where you do have these foreign powers and China having a very unequal relationship, but also China trying to keep any foreigners to the treaty ports. But at the same time, we're really on, on the cusp of something here in the sense that you've got the Qing dynasty on the one side and you've got uh, Hong Su Chuan proclaiming himself as emperor in Nanjing. So would we have had at that point then potentially a Christian China? 
Well, remember, for the Qing government, the threat from Mr. Hung was far more serious than the threat from the foreigners. So they were having to fight a war on two fronts. They were fighting uh, this enormous civil war. And at the same time, the, the foreign powers were attacking them in the coastal areas. So the Western powers have to decide what to do. They decide that they're going to support the Qing dynasty. And I think the main reason is that they like to have a weak, centralized authority over which they can have enormous control and they can make demands and their demands will be met. Whereas if they support Mr. Hong, this is a radical new empire which they cannot really control and can't really understand, and it's messianic. I mean, the, many of the people that belong to it are fired with missionary zeal. So these are not people who will easily follow the orders of the foreign side. So the foreign powers set up what is called the ever-victorious army, and the head of it is Charles Gordon, the British general, who was later to die in Khartoum, and he becomes the head of this ever-victorious army. And this army is put at the service of the Qing armies. So the Qing army plus Gordon's army, it, that is sufficiently strong. So they uh, wage war on the uh, Taiping army, and eventually they win. And 1864, they storm Nanjing, and it's absolutely horrific event because the, the Taiping soldiers, they will not surrender because, as I say, they, they're fired with this missionary zeal, so they will only die. So it is a horrific bloodbath in slaughter on both sides. And finally, the, the Taiping emperor is killed and his empire comes to an end. And I think it's always been an episode which every Chinese ruler since then has never been able to forget because this is the consequence of allowing foreigners, but especially missionaries, unfettered access into China, allow them to spread their documents, their Bibles, their tracts, and this is the outcome. You create this rebellion. So I'm sure this is a main reason why the PRC government since 1949 has been so strict in controlling the entry of foreign missionaries, it bans any evangelization by foreigners in China. And I think in the back of their mind is that if you don't, things will spin out of control and you might have another Taiping Tianguo again. Karl Gutzlaff had written the Bible or translated the Bible into Chinese. Hong Su Chuan had taken that Bible, put his own editions in there, rewritten it to a certain extent, and that the one that his followers took in order to then set about the Taiping Rebellion. Is there anywhere written by Karl Gutzlaff what his reaction to all of this was? Well, Gutzlaff died in 1851. The rebellion began about 1849, 1850, so it became important after Gutzlaff's death. So, no, we, we don't know what he, he thought about it. But w what we do have is we have a lot of judgments by foreign missionaries about the Taiping Rebellion, because, as I mentioned, it's, it's such an enormous event, and you have to decide whether or not it, it's, is it a Christian re rebellion? Is it a legitimate Christian rebellion, or is it just a rebellion by Chinese people wearing the clothes of Christianity. Karl Gutzlaff dies in 1851, so he never sees what the outcome of this typing movement is, you know, with this self-proclaimed 
Emperor Hong Su Chuan. If we return fully to the life of Karl Gutzlaff, he's then translated the Bible, he's trained up missionaries and set up the Chinese Evangelization Society, which sends off Hudson Taylor from Britain. But what's he doing towards the end of his life and who is he influencing? Well, as we've said, he was a prolific translator, a prolific writer. He wrote articles. And of course, especially in the early days of the missionary movement, they didn't have money from here. They had to raise money from Europe. So they, you would have to write for publications in Germany, in Britain, in France to persuade people there to, to give money for your mission. So one of the people who read his articles was David Livingston, the famous African explorer. So he read one of Gutzlaff's articles in 1840 and he was inspired to be a medical missionary. But in 1840, it was too dangerous to come to China, so he instead went to Africa. And uh, he had an extraordinary life in Africa, so Gutzlaff influenced him. Now, I also read that another reader of his articles was Karl Marx. Now, I'd, uh, Karl Marx certainly didn't become <laughs> a missionary. <laughs> My thanks to China analyst and author Mark O'Neill, talking there on the life and legacy of German missionary Karl Gutzlaff. Well, after more than 70 years on our airwaves, the legend that is Uncle Ray Cadero is having a well-earned retirement. So I look forward to celebrating the life of the world's most durable DJ next week. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.